Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. All right. If your heart language is Spanish, Pastor Reyes is about to preach in Spanish over in the Connection Center. We aim to please. If your heart language is pirate, we have nothing for you. Okay. I'd like to share something briefly that has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon. So, I think they mentioned last Sunday that the Kaisers were passing around the flu, because that's fun. Um... I haven't gotten to preach in 21 days. That's just, for some of us, that's like, something's wrong in the cosmos. I haven't yelled at people recently. <sighs> well, the thing was, is two weeks ago, I wasn't here because we were on vacation. And it's a good chance. You know, pastors have lots of faults, but one of, a grouping of our faults and mistakes is never knowing at all what other churches do. Other, way, you know, other churches love Jesus and are trying to honor him and bless the world. And we have no idea what they're doing. We never should get a chance to visit. So we visited um, a big church with lots of bells and whistles and lights and it was great and all. They clearly love Jesus and they preached the gospel and I was excited for all of that. But you know what I was most excited about? most excited when my daughter said, I like our church better. <laughs> Young people, if you don't know, there is nothing your parents will not do to get you into a church where you feel loved and accepted and taught. There's nothing they won't do. I want you to know your parents love you. All right. Evangelism and the Empty Tomb. Part three, a week late, but that's okay. This series, Risen King, we are extrapolating, we're seeing what happened because of and after the resurrection. If you need a copy of God's word, please put a hand up. Glenn's passing out Bibles right now. And then you're gonna turn to page 902 in that hardback. Everybody else, John 20. We're wrapping up John 20 today. And then, can you believe it next week? We are wrapping up the gospel of John. Can you believe it? Some of you don't know the magnitude of that because you haven't been here for the three years, four months, seven days, nine hours, 26 minutes since we started this gospel, but we're wrapping it up next week. I'm very excited. It's a beautiful book. But we're, verses 19 through 31 this week. We're gonna explore, and when I say explore, it's gonna be exploring like a hammer, pounding the same point <laughs> multiple times. The relationship between evangelism which is just a fancy word that means go tell people about Jesus, our fourth core value, and an empty tomb. It's not actually very hard if we stop and think through the logic. If somebody was dead and you saw them dead and then they are alive, what are the odds that you tell no one? Right? You're pulling out your phone immediately and it's going on to social media. This person was alive. This person, this person was dead and they're alive. This per-. 
that is apart from them claiming to be God. That's totally separate. If a regular Joe died and you saw it with your own eyes and he is alive, you are going to tell people, period. It is the most logical, rational behavior of any human being. But things get ratcheted up just a bit. If he claimed to be God, and after he's raised, he meets with all of his disciples again, reaffirming his teachings about the kingdom, the same stuff he'd been saying for three and a half years, telling them, wait for my Holy Spirit, he's going to fill you, and I'm going to go up into heaven and be with the Father, my Spirit is going to be with you, you're going to do even greater things than what you've seen so far. Now it's dialed to 11, because I saw him dead, and now he's alive, and he is sending all of us who believe he's telling us that we are his ambassadors in the world, we're his representatives, telling the whole world of the love and forgiveness of God through his cross. Or another way of saying it is, the empty tomb is the launch pad of all evangelism. If that tomb's not empty, what news does the church have to share? We had this really cool rabbi. We were for sure he was God. We just knew he was Messiah, but they killed him. The end. The book ends odd at that point, right? That's a weird ending. We were just sure he was the guy, but he died like everybody else who claimed to be God. And, and it's over now, and his book sales are tanking, and we thought it was going to be this big movement, but oh well, right? Okay. Evangelism in the empty tomb. That's, those are what we are exploring today because they are inextricably linked. Read with me. Oh, I hid it down here. Read with me, starting at verse 19 of chapter 20. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly Jesus, so if you're new to church or if it's been a while and you've got to shake the cobwebs off, it was the Jewish leader stirring up the crowd to get them to shout crucify him. So there's very, very, um, it's very logical to think that they're looking to stamp out the entire movement. You're not just afraid, it's not just that they killed the leader, they might be coming after you as well. So they're terrified. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. What? What? Wait, what, what just happened there that didn't work? There was something there that didn't work. What was it? Dead people don't stand. What else doesn't work there? Oh, oh my goodness. And Renault lands the dismount. The disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid. He didn't stand at the, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That didn't happen. He's just there. The Gnostics, the first major heresy the church had to deal with, didn't have any problem with this at all because they believed Jesus was only spirit and not body. And they believed it was perverse to think that a body would be nailed to the cross and Jesus' spirit kind of just hovered on the cross. It was such a mess. But hey, it gave us the Nicene Council and the Nicene Creed. So... There's a silver lining to every dark cloud where we had to say, no, Jesus was fully God and fully man. He had a body. His body was 
tortured and killed and raised, bodily raised, okay? He's in a room behind a locked door. So what does that tell the church when the New Testament tells the church that on the last day, we're not only going to be judged, but those of us who are found under the blood of Christ, we're going to reign with him. We're we're going to have new bodies, the New Testament tells us. What does that tell us about our new bodies if Jesus was the firstborn of the resurrection? They're going to be fundamentally superior to the ones we have now. Can I get an amen? Thank you, Jesus. And if you're like me, you find out that a resurrection body doesn't have any problem walking through a wall, and you have one immediate concern. Wait, how non-physical is this? Because some of us like food. In another gospel, he asks for a piece of fish and he has breakfast with them or he eats with, or a dinner or whatever. So he walks through a wall and then asks for me a meal. Twofer. So that's exciting. Anybody here filled with any fear when I tell you there is a future where humanity will be able to walk through walls, no problem, anybody can go anywhere? Any reason to be afraid? The nature of Jesus' resurrected body tells us that we will be in a place with absolutely no sin, no theft, no rape, no murder, no lies, no manipulation, nothing bad will happen ever again. Because sin itself will be finally defeated. Satan himself thrown into the lake of fire, never getting out. We will not need locked doors. It won't be a thing. Peace be with you. That's a good thing to say because I'm scared at this moment. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So this didn't make it into sermon, so I want to need to share real quickly. One, John, the author, is a... Uh, he's great with a turn of phrase and he loves purposeful double entendre. Okay, so the same Greek word that's, that is interpreted breath is also spirit. They're one and the same thing. And, G, and he uses this word on purpose. The Holy Spirit had not been sent before this point. He's gonna fully manifest in his church a few weeks later at Pentecost. He breathes on them. That's incredible, important symbolism It's not just any spirit, it's the spirit of Christ. This is why the New Testament writers flip back and forth all the time saying the Holy Spirit or the spirit of Christ. Well, which one is it? He's a third person of a triune God. You shouldn't view him as that separate from Jesus. He's not separate in his will. He's not separate in his intentions. He's not separate in his holiness. He's not separate in his complete uh, power, okay? He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then says this statement, that sounds wrong if you grew up in church. And we need to deal with it real quick. And this is a plural you, by the way. This is talking about the disciples, the church, not just one individual person. 
Verse 23, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Does that sound like a Christian or more accurately, Christianity gets to just wave a magic wand and forgive sins? Or, or pull back that magic wand and condemn someone? Doesn't that sound like what it's saying? Two of the most important rules in Bible interpretation are as follows. Number one, when you have a text that is not particularly clear, you interpret it in light of the texts that are clear. Okay? If you know, 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 know for sure that your wife is an incredible woman who loves you dearly, then when she's not back from work or something on time, you don't immediately go, she's cheating on me. (laughs) What is unclear is where your wife is. What is clear is however many years of faithfulness, right? That principle right there will help you stop judging God when there's a text that's unclear, okay? 66 books of his love and faithfulness and justice and mercy, 66, okay? including a lot of books that make it really clear only God is the judge. Nobody can forgive sins but him in an ultimate sense. So if the Bible says that clearly and repeatedly, we allow that to be the lens through which we look at an unclear text. Does that make sense? We're not even in the sermon yet and you guys are getting the gravy this week. I hope those pens are flying. Secondly, second important interpretive rule you allow a plurality of texts to interpret a single one. Sometimes there are passages that are really confusing and you're not totally sure, but it's literally one sentence. And there are multiple chunks. You know, if you have 10 pieces of scripture across six different books of the Bible that are really clear about an idea, that is far more trustworthy than one little sentence that's found once in the Bible. Does that make sense? This is not unique to the Bible. You could read Charles Dickens and the rule would still apply. If you're in chapter four of Oliver Twist and there's a sentence where you're not totally sure what Dickens is saying, finish the book. The totality of the story will help you understand what Dickens is saying. That makes sense? Okay. So related to verse 23, I'm just gonna give it to you and then we're gonna move on because we don't have all day. And you can go study this week and I'd love it if you did that. Jesus is letting the church know right now that as holders of the gospel truth, what is that? That any sinner can be reconciled to the Father by the blood of Jesus. They have a proclaiming, teaching, and clarifying ministry to the world now. They are letting people know whether or not they are forgiven. The church does that. Not any individual person. You want to know if you're forgiven? Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you how you rightly relate to the Father through the Son. Let me tell you about his cross. Let me tell you how you humble yourself. Let me tell you how you receive forgiveness freely. The church has that ministry. If you want to know your right standing with God, ask a Christian. Does that scare you yet? It's it's not the pastor's or elder's job to clarify the gospel. It's the church's job and our privilege. You want to know if you're right with God? Ask a Christian. That's what verse 23 is saying. Christians will tell you. They're going to tell you all about the blood of Jesus offered freely to sinners like you and me. That's what a Christian's going to tell you. Verse 24. 
One of the disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Is that a little bit offensive? If you guys have been a band of brothers for three and a half years, feel like you know each other by now. All these guys are saying, we saw the Lord. Thomas, you guys are liars. I hope that that warms your heart if you find yourself in a place of doubt and cynicism 2,000 years later. The testimony of reliable people over and against what I know to be true about the physical world. Does it sound like everybody in the 21st century has that exact same choice? Hmm? We love to go, oh, well, we can't be there. Oh, well, we can't send a camera back to, to live record whether the resurrection happened. We love to play that game. This is why the authenticity of the Bible is constantly under attack because the Bible is the record of those who saw him and believed. If you see him and don't believe, you're not gonna write about it. Well, except for Josephus. But he wrote about people who saw and who didn't believe. But mostly, if you believe is when you're excited to write down your testimony that next generations would know your testimony of the resurrection. So the whole doubting Thomas thing, throwing Thomas under the bus, let's knock that off. We all do it. I know dead people don't live again. And there are these trustworthy people telling me the opposite. That's not an easy choice, guys. That's hard. The character of the eyewitnesses, a plurality of them, no less. And I know these guys. But I also know that dead people don't live. What do you do with that? I'm glad you asked. We're going to find out later. Okay. Verse 26. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. Where have we heard this before? But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Anyone creeped out yet? Wait, Jesus knew what I was saying even though he wasn't in the room last week? You see, guys, power will terrify you if you don't trust the one who's powerful. He can walk through any wall and if he's not there, he still knows what you're saying. That is terrifying if Jesus is evil. But what does he do? Right off the bat, he starts pastoring one of his sheep. He's inviting one of his sheep toward faith. Walks into the room, looks at Thomas, addresses his exact faith need. And it's funny, this is, we, we sometimes play this game between evidence and choice. Jesus says, here's the evidence. Put your finger in my side. Believe, an imperative, a command. Evidence and choice. Evidence and choice, both. We cannot act like Jesus has to 
create this insurmountable stack of resurrection evidence. And once he produces enough evidence, something inside me will just naturally click. I won't have to do anything because it's just self-evident. Everybody knows. The existence of people who do not believe we've landed on the moon or that believe the earth is flat. When you think, or when I think, something's really, really clear and obvious, the existence of another group tells you that there is choice involved in belief. It's not just the evidence. If it was the evidence, we would all believe the exact same thing. There is choice. And Jesus knows that, and he calls Thomas to believe. Verse 28. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. This is talking about the church, guys. This is talking about you. You have not seen him with your own eyes and you are blessed because you've believed anyway. And in case you think Greg's making that up for a cool emotional moment, I read like five dead guys. They all said the same thing. Okay. The disciples saw Jesus. Listen to this, the purpose of the book. I have, I have uh, again, I know not everybody's been here the whole time. We've probably repeated this at least a dozen times. It's, it's probably not been enough. This is where, almost parenthetically, John says, hey, this is the purpose of me writing down all of this. Verse 30, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So as I've said many times now, John has a definitive bias. He believes, he wants you to believe. You can criticize that, but it's clear. Holy Spirit, would you teach us from your word today? Holy Spirit, would you give us insight into Thomas today? Would you give us insight into our Savior today? God, would you give us insight into how believing works and how proclaiming works? Father, we need your leadership. We need your lordship over every part of our life and over our world, over our families, over our church. We invite your lordship the way that Thomas eventually did. My Lord and my God, we invite it. Father, because you're not just powerful, you are trustworthy. Create worshipers, God, as your word is taught. Do not allow me to add opinion to this and speak clearly, powerfully, effectively in a way that creates praise and adoration in your people and that meets us in our place of need if we do not yet believe. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray, and God's people said. Number one for your note takers. Jesus died to end a war. The word shalom is lost on us, English speakers, 21st century. The type of peace that the word shalom connotates is very broad and all-encompassing. And if you grew up in church and I described all of shalom, you'd go, oh, that sounds like heaven. Social peace, emotional peace. It all flows, of course, out of peace with God. I'm not at war with God anymore. He says, peace be with you three times. 
And our brother Paul, a first century pastor in Romans 5.1, extrapolates this idea a little bit and says, hey, now because of the blood of Jesus, the church has peace with God. You're not at war with him anymore. The first breath in some ways of evangelism, the beginning of telling people of the goodness of God through Jesus is, hey, you might not have known this, but you were at war with God. That's what sin is. It's, it's rebellion. It's treason. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is a word that if we think we're only talking about emotional regulation, we'd think he's saying, hey, calm down. I understand you're seeing a dead guy, but relax. It includes that, but it's much bigger. It's much bigger than that. Um, how would you feel if all of your closest friends abandoned you in your moment of need and you got horribly beaten and murdered? Hmm? If, I, if that happened to me and I came back, I'd have some words for those fellas. Hey guys, that was kind of a jerk move. Did angry Jesus walk into the room? Vengeance didn't show up. If you want to know the heart of Jesus, abandon him and allow him to die a horrible death and then when he comes back, see what he says. John 3, 17 says, Son of Man didn't come to condemn, but to save. And he proved it. He says, peace, 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 peace. And our brother Paul says, hey, this peace comes from the blood of Jesus. You've been cleansed of your sins by faith, and so you are on God's side now. You changed sides. You have the gun, and you're firing bullets. You're still fighting, but you're on the other side. You're fighting darkness now. You're at peace with God. And so with groups starting this last week, I wanted to point out something really important to help affect and shape culture of our Sunday school classes and groups. Uh, but I want you to know this in case I haven't done a good job explaining this before. There's a very evangelistic ministry to groups that I don't know if I've explained well. When I call a group a disciple group, it is not just a group of disciples. You have already chosen to follow Jesus. Let's get together and follow Jesus together. That's the idea. These groups are also for people who want to know what being a disciple looks like. Safe place, I'd like for you to testify. Who here remembers the time where you were considering Christianity and thinking about it and checking it out? Okay. If you're five, your journey toward Christ probably looks one way. But if you're 17, it looks different. And if you're 51, it looks different. We just started summer groups, and this is where we get together and we go, we are going to follow Jesus together. This is where all the one another's of Scripture happen. Teaching, correcting, rebuking, encouraging, pastoral ministry happens on a very practical level. But the very beginning of evangelism, the very beginning of proclaiming this resurrection, is teaching and explaining, and it's explaining that there was a war. You were in it, you were fighting God, and you are no longer fighting it. So this is my encouragement. I, I, from this pulpit, in our large group gathering on Sunday, 
I'm teaching Christians primarily, but I'm trying to explain my way through in case you're new to church. Does that make sense? To bring everybody along? My encouragement for you in your Sunday school classes and groups is to bring everybody along. Okay? It is so easy. Human beings, we... We assume everyone thinks like us. We assume everybody believes the same thing that we believe. And this is just a theological issue. We assume sometimes that no one could possibly be in a Sunday school class unless they already believe the gospel. And that is simply wrong. It's simply wrong because God is at work. He's doing things. He's drawing people to himself. Um, there was a church up in Vancouver, BC, about three or four years ago now, they were having kind of a church in the park thing. So they had worship outside at this public park. And uh, if you don't know, Canada is easily 30, 40 years ahead of America in the secularization journey. Not quite France, but not Austin, you know, not uh, Alabama either. And it's, it is not popular in any respect to be a Christian. And the preacher is up there and he's, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to this large group of people who ostensibly already believe it, but anybody could hear, right? And one of their deacons, with such a pastor's heart, to leave the 99 to go find the one, he walks over at the very edge, pretty far away. There's a pond and there's a guy fishing and he decides to stand next to him and say, so that's some pretty interesting stuff that guy's saying up there. What do you think? And the guy immediately starts tearing up and he says, I don't even know how to fish. I was just standing here with a pole so that I could listen. Nobody made that guy stand there with that pole to listen. Brothers and sisters, the church doesn't go around and necessarily gin up the kingdom of God. We're chasing Jesus, finding wherever he's already working and we're coming alongside and we're saying, here am I, send me. Lord, use me, I wanna be a part. There's no way you're two steps ahead of the Holy Spirit. That's ludicrous. That's ludicrous. So here's my encouragement specifically to those of you that love Jesus. Please don't make assumptions about the spiritual journey of others that are in your class or group. Please don't make assumptions, okay? This affects the way that we talk. When we say we, we start a sentence with the word we, we gotta be really careful because we just defined we. Well, we believe that, blah, 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 blah. Oh, your sentence reveals that you think everyone in the room's a Christian, right? You could swap that out. It seems the scriptures teach, blah, 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 blah. And and let the group dialogue, okay? That's my encouragement to you because the beginning of this gospel is a ministry that we've been given. Here in 2022, note takers, Jesus sent his church with the same authority that the Father sent him. Jesus sent his church with the same authority that the Father sent him. That's big. See verse 21. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Whoa. So Christmas, the Father sends the Son. The resurrection, the ascension at Pentecost, so I send you. Whoa. So let's talk about authority. 
Go back to a time before cell phones. There's a war in Europe, just theoretically. I'm not saying this actually happened, but it's 1944 and you're in Europe and you're shooting the bad guys. Is there a general over the American army? A few of them, actually. Is the general in charge? Yeah, if you're a private, <laughs> absolutely. But what if Tom Hanks was your lieutenant? If you've seen Save It Private Ryan, you know that sometimes a general delegates his authority to a small group of men to go well behind enemy lines to go do something that has to be done and there will be no communication. You're on your own. If you're in a problem, there's no one to reach to and we don't know where you are or how it's going, you're going to do your thing, okay? The general is in charge, but if he hands all authority to your lieutenant and you are now no longer in communication, who's in charge? Oh my goodness, church, I hope you're scared. I hope you're putting the dots together and you're terrified. You're not alone. The Spirit has filled you and you have the delegated authority of the Father sending the Son. That's how sent you are. We are so sent. We are continuing on the ministry of Jesus Christ, telling people of his love and of his mercy. Oh, church, you are so sent. We are so sent. This is a big deal. To hear your lieutenant say something is a big deal, but to hear lieutenant say, the general told me. That's bigger. That's a, that's a big deal. That is a very big deal. Our fourth core value as a church is go tell people about Jesus. If you love him, I want you to know your place of work is a holy assignment. It's sacred. The Holy Spirit knows what he's doing when he puts you in the place of work he puts you. If you love Jesus, your family is a holy assignment. If you love Jesus, the street that you live on is a holy assignment. If you're a student and you love Jesus, your classroom is a holy assignment. God knows what he's up to in your life, even when you and I don't know what he's up to. He's been working since before the foundation of the world. Third, we, those who love Jesus, are sent as teaching priests. I made it a run-on sentence on purpose. Two and three go together. Jesus sent his church with the same authority that the Father sent him, and we are sent, we the church, as teaching priests. Teaching priests. We're running out of time. I'll try to be fast. In case you missed that week of Sunday school when you were a kid. God spoke to Moses on a mountain and he did not just give us ethical law, don't murder each other, don't steal from each other, etc. He also gave us ceremonial law. Hey, you guys are going to build a tent for me. It's not going to be a four-man tent that's made of plastic you bought at Sears for 60 bucks. It's going to be really, 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 really nice. It's going to require lots of silver and gold and fine linen and all of this stuff. And when you make it just the way I tell you to make it, I'm going to come live there. It's called the tabernacle. 
And they went out and did exactly what God said to do, built out this tabernacle according to the exact specs. And let me tell you something crazy that you, didn't, you wouldn't think 2,600 years ago is so re- relevant to today, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so he doesn't change. If I was new to the, temp, to the tabernacle and you were a priest and I show up, you're going to help me understand everything that I'm seeing. I'm a worshiper. I've been told from the, Moses and those who explained Moses, I'm going to be told that because of my sins, I had to bring a, an animal. And maybe I got right information, maybe I didn't, but through the grapevine I heard thus and such. And I meet a priest at the door and the priest is immediately going to help me, the sinner, the, want, the wannabe worshiper, Check out the animal. What did you do? Is it turtle doves? Is it a lamb? Is it a bull? What's your, what's your financial means? Poorer families are allowed to give this as an offering. If you have the means, you're supposed to give this kind of offering. There's allowance made. The priest is the one who clarifies that for me. Did I bring, oh, this lamb has a broken leg. I'm not allowed to bring a lamb with a broken leg. I have to give my very best. The priest is the one who teaches me that and lets me know. And then if I've got the right animal, according to God's law, what's the very first thing I see and smell and encounter at the door? Who knows? Who remembers your chart up on the wall in Sunday school class? There's an altar. Hundreds of feet away, I smelled the burning flesh of rams and bulls and goats and turtle doves. I smelled the scent of death a long way away. Because this God is so just that he takes sin seriously, but he's so merciful, he's allowing sinless animals to die in my place. You want to be right with God? You're going to smell the scent of death. The altar is first, and you cannot walk past it to this bronze laver where there's holy water that your hands could be washed, let alone into the presence of God. I can't be washed unless something innocent dies first. The priests are the one that teach me how to interact with the altar rightly, how I'm putting my hand on the head of that animal and apologizing to God for my sins. Then I could move past that to now the priests are taking over from there. But what they do with the sacrifice, what is washed, when it's washed, and then where God resides and all of the rules related to the Holy of Holies. The priests teach me that. The priests teach me where I'm allowed to go, where I'm not allowed to go, and when, and how. Christians, there is nobody on earth who can explain to the world how to relate rightly to the cross of Christ, except for Christians. You're the ones that tell people, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That is step one. You're at the entrance of this tabernacle. Is there forgiveness of sins and a bronze laver behind where you're washed clean? Yeah, but you've got to get past death. Death of something or someone who is innocent. Death of someone who's dying in your place. You should have died. But you don't have to now. And then beyond that is the very presence of God. Do you think the Holy of Holies still matters in the 21st century? Does this still matter, all this Old Testament history? God seems to think it matters because when his son died, he ripped the veil of the temple from top to bottom. Hmm? For how long had he said, I'm going to stay in there to protect you. My holiness would incinerate you because you are sinful. 
And he tears that curtain and like, I'm coming out. Let's better get this party started. The Holy Spirit of the living God invaded planet earth at the death of Jesus. He'll go anywhere he wants. And how is he not incinerating us? The blood of Jesus. The church age is God actively offering mercy and forgiveness and grace to anyone who will believe. We're not being incinerated. Who teaches? Who teaches how the cross works and how you relate rightly to the Father through the Son? Who, who, who can teach that? Raise your hand if you would like to trust our Muslim friends to do that teaching. Oh, dang it, nobody. Okay. Raise your hand if you would like for us to trust our Confucian friends with explaining that to everyone. No? Man, okay, two strikes. Only the church can explain who Jesus is, how you relate rightly. Here's how the gospel applies to you. That is our ministry. 2 Corinthians 5 says we have a ministry of reconciliation. It uses ambassador language that we go and declare what? Peace. Peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. So choose your metaphor. The priesthood is still alive. Those of you who take care of your your doctrine and you like studying, you've heard of the priesthood of the believer as a doctrine that was fought for really hard 500 years ago at the Reformation where the Protestants like us said, hey, no, I don't have to talk to a specific person who's called a priest and then they pray to Jesus for me. No, 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 no. By the blood of Jesus Christ is interceding at the right hand of the Father right now, and the Holy Spirit intercedes as well inside me, right? Romans tells us that when we don't have the words, the Holy Spirit intercedes. I don't have to talk through a mere mortal like you or me. You do not come and tell me your sins, and then I tell Jesus your sins. No, 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 no. That's what people are usually talking about when they talk about the priest or the believer. Unfortunately, that's a little truncated. That's just one detail, The priest of the believer, second part, it also means that you and I help others understand and rightly relate to God. How are we going to help people rightly relate to God? Do good stuff? Share the gospel. Teacher's pet. (laughs) There is no right relation to God apart from a bloodied cross, right? Right? That's what Peter was preaching in, uh, what, Acts 4? By no other name. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. He's Messiah. He is the Lamb. He is the great high priest. That's why Jesus is called the high priest, not the priest, by the way. We're all priests. He's just the leader. He is the high priest and he is the sacrifice. The cross was the altar. Well, I'm excited, even if you guys are. I'm I'm excited. Don't tell me Leviticus isn't important in the 21st century. You guys just got a primer on Leviticus if you didn't know. And it screams how much the world needs Jesus. There was a man walking through New York City and he was lost and so he needed to ask for directions. He stopped a guy and said, hey bro, can you help me out? How do you get to Carnegie Hall? And the guy just sunk his head and back and forth. Whew, practice, man, practice. 
10 seconds later. <laughs> How big of a jerk would you have to be if you are in your home city and somebody's looking lost and they ask you a question and you don't help them? You just have to really be a jerk. If only for your own selfish reasons if you get to feel helpful and feel like you did your good deed for the day, what a ludicrous idea. Even for your own selfish reasons. If you know, oh yeah, this way. It just seems to be such a nice, kind, normal human interaction. Oh yeah, you just go down this way and then turn left. Okay. Christians, you already know how to get to God. And no one else does. This is the offensive truth claim of the gospel. Not just that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God, but if you knew it, if you knew the way, you'd be a Christian by now. It wouldn't just be head knowledge. It would have encaptured your heart and it would result in worship and adoration. Church, you know how people can get to God. You know already And I'm not against evangelism training, but don't tell me you need a 12-week class. You can tell somebody about the restaurant you had last night. It was awesome. You can tell somebody about a new show you saw. It it is not that complicated. Come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? A promiscuous woman in two sentences can lead a whole town to Jesus. Jesus. But you're sitting there going, well, I don't know what to do. Greg is up there and he uses big words sometimes. I'm sure Greg has the answers. Huh? Jesus died to save my sins. You already know that. What do I have to do with it? Guys, you know what the opposite of the priesthood of the believer? Like the practical application of the priesthood of the believer, it's not... Greg, who's the professional Christian for us and the professional explainer necessarily. I am more like a quarterback. We get into the huddle on Sunday and I say, guys, I really think this is what God has told us to do. And you know what you do after the quarterback calls the play? You run the play. The next six and a half days, we are gonna love and serve people around us who don't believe the same things that we believe. And if you don't run the play, don't don't come back to the huddle. Coach will rip you off the field fast if you don't run the play. This is why we don't just forever stay in our Bible studies, parsing Greek verbs. Yeah, 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 but you gotta do something with what God told you. Obedience is the point. Joy-filled obedience is the point. If you love Jesus, here's your next step. We gotta wrap up. Look to his wounds when you doubt Jesus. I'm saying this to Christians. Don't you dare for a second beat yourself up that you're a Christian and you have doubts. Welcome to planet Earth. This is normal. You're still in a fight with sin. Paul, oh, what a wretch of a man that I am. I do that which I don't want to do and I don't do that which I do want to do. Yeah, welcome. The spirit-born self and the flesh are still in there and they are at war and the flesh is already crucified but his full crucifixion is not going to happen until the Lord takes you home. You are going to doubt. You're going to. What is Jesus' invitation when he walks into a room of people who ostensibly believe he's the Messiah? What's his invitation? He says, look at my wounds to the people who already theoretically believe. 
Did you see how John's language in verse 31, I told you these stories, I wrote these down that you may continue to believe. Faith has to be fought for. It's a daily choice. You don't just do it once. You don't cry tears on Thursday night of a junior high camp once and then you're done faithing. I don't need to faith anymore. I faithed once, so I trust God perfectly from here on out. That's ludicrous. If you're exploring faith, here's my challenge to you. Make the choice to believe. Make the choice to believe. I already preached this point earlier. God presents evidence, but there is also personal choice that comes. This is what we are called to do with the evidence. We make the choice to believe. We make the choice to believe something else. How can all of America see the exact same news story and come to two different conclusions in an instant? How is that even possible? Because we are fundamentally predisposed to believe something before we hear it. We're fundamentally disposed to doubt something before we hear it, if it fits what we want to be true, okay? I'm gonna pray for us, and then we're gonna share a couple of quick announcements. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are actively seeking and saving the lost and creating faith in people's hearts and I ask you to do it now today to glorify the Son who will glorify the Father as people come to worship you. Jesus, for those of us who already love you, we ask that you would grow our faith in you, that we would honor you even more, that we would walk in greater obedience. God, every one of us who loves you, there's an area of obedience where we've been struggling and, and I ask for growth. I ask for breakthrough in that area because we really trust you with the outcome. We trust you that you are doing good things in our souls and in our lives. Jesus, help us to really submit to you as Lord over our lives and not just the one who forgave us of our sins and then we ignore you. Help us to gladly follow you because your wisdom and power are immense and your love is immense. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Three things. Number one, groups started this week, but it is not too late. Um, we still have no announcement video this week, right? Oh, okay. I was like, oh no, I just ran roughshod over his announcement video. He's going to shank me in the parking lot. Um, the, there are still back there, there, my wife did a great job. She put the name of the group and when they meet and the face of the leader is on there with their cell phone. If you don't know which group you want to be a part of, I understand some of you already know and you talked with your friends and that's great. But if you're not in a group yet, that's a great place to look and see what is offered at different times. Uh, I also invite you to come talk to me. If you're like, hey, this is what our schedule looks like. Is there a group that's a good fit for us? And I'll talk with you or, um, or talk with Emily if you, um, if you know Emily and she could help you find uh, a group that's a good fit for you. We're going to be doing these groups for May, June, July. They're done at the end of July. So this is your chance to make friends um, and to make friends if you want to follow Jesus that are going to help you follow Jesus, right? Anybody here good at following Jesus all on your own? Dag nabbit, don't make me chop that arm off. Okay. So don't try to follow Jesus alone, okay? Peter had a group and he's still face planted a few times. All right. Baptisms. So we got thrown off a little bit last week with me being sick. Um, baptisms are still next week. And if you're uh, a baptism candidate or been thinking about it, we're gonna have a very, very quick meeting because I know it's Mother's Day. We're gonna meet for about 10 or 15 minutes right here in the new office, right here as I dismiss, okay? 
So like in three minutes, we're gonna have a meeting. The purpose of that meeting is to talk through and clarify your understanding of the gospel real quick to make sure you understand what is the decision to publicly identify with Jesus Christ as the Lord over you and savior of you. So we're gonna do that right after service in here. Third thing, and I'm really excited about, I wanna announce a ladies' morning. Ladies, do you need a morning to yourselves? Do you need some rest? Do you need some R&R? Is it time to go get the petty? Manny? I don't expect the fellas to understand right now. It wasn't for you. I wanna give the ladies some free time. So we're having a ladies' morning. Saturday, May 21. Pull out your phones, this is important because you're gonna tell your husbands about it shortly. (laughs) What our participation level is gonna be. From 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., Saturday morning, May 21, is the ladies' morning. And here's what it entails. The fellas are gonna show up here and clean the weeds out of the parking lot and pull the weeds out of the gutters in the Pringle building, and we're gonna bring the children with us. There you go, ladies' morning. All right, put it in your calendars. Did he just take a work day and rebrand it? That was shady. Can't believe he did that. Anyway, but yeah, Pastor Greg's telling your fella to show up and telling him to bring the kids, bring the grandkids. It's gonna be a good time because have you seen some of those weeds? Yeah, it's time, it's time. We should have done it a month ago, but that's it. If you're a baptism candidate uh, or would like to ask some questions and find out a little more about baptism, we're gonna be in this room just in a couple of minutes. Everybody, I love you. Ladies, if you didn't get a rose on your way in, make sure to get one on the way out. Have a great week.